We're in a series uh, that I'm rather enjoying. Uh, it's something that Pete cooked up. Uh, but it's this, uh, this idea of the table or the idea of meals or the idea of homes, the idea of people coming together and, and what we see transpire in those intimate settings um, as Jesus kind of walks through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this particular one that we're getting into this week has profound importance and significance for me, and I'll kind of roll that out maybe as we get going. But the idea is uh, at the table through the Gospel of Luke, and last week we were at the feeding of the 5,000. This week we're one chapter over, and we're in Luke 10. So last week we were in Luke chapter 9, this week Luke chapter 10, and we'll begin at verse 38. All right, verse 38 uh, of Luke 10, and it's the story of Mary and Martha, and it begins this way. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made, and she came to him and asked, Lord... Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Uh, let's pause there just for a minute. It's an interesting thing because you've got these two sisters living together. And there's been debate as to whether these are younger women that are not yet married uh, or whether these are widowed women that are, that are somewhat older. Uh, and, in, and widowed in that culture could have been young in our eyes uh, or younger in our eyes. But trying to, to get a sense of the fact that you've got this kind of woman-led household, these two women together, the home of Martha and Mary. And you get the sense that Martha's older, just by the way it talks uh, about Martha opening her home to Jesus. So you've got these two sisters. You would suspect Martha to be older. Um, it could be that she is a widow and has the home and Mary is older um, and comes into the home. We don't know, uh, but the idea is you've got Mary and Martha, and because of the preparations of hosting a meal, Jesus traveled with an entourage, uh, and, and so as he went, his disciples came, and a lot of other people would follow, and so when you're inviting Jesus into your home, what you're really doing is inviting his party into your home. And so there are a lot of details. There's a lot of food that has to be cooked. There's no microwaves. Uh, there's a lot of feet that need to be cleaned. There's, there's a lot of people to tend to. And so Martha is busy running around tending to all these details. And as it feels, if, if you're married, you know what this is like when you have people over and you look over and your spouse isn't really helping. Um, you know what that feels like. You know what I'm talking about? Tamara tells me about this all the time. Um, <laughs> And, and so you're, you're kind of going through and you look over and you're like, wow, life would be a little bit easier if there was some help. Uh, and so where is Mary? Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and that is a very um, specific formula that's used there that she's sitting at Jesus' feet. Jesus is a rabbi. He comes into the house as a rabbi with his students and he's using this opportunity to teach and while he's teaching, Mary, as a disciple, takes the posture uh, of a learner 
uh, at the feet of this rabbi and is learning from him. That's kind of the formula in this time uh, period and this day and age that those that sat at the feet of the rabbi were the ones that were the students that wanted to be like the rabbi. And so that's where Mary is. And Martha sees this, and what's going through Martha's head? Uh, a couple things. One, um, I need some help, and so I'm frustrated. So that's kind of what's agitating her to deal with the situation. Second, Mary's place is uh, helping me host this gathering. In a very real way, her place is in the kitchen, and instead of being there, she's somewhere that is not her place, She's acting as if she's one of the disciples sitting at this rabbi's feet. So she's outside of social norms and social conventions. And by being outside of those norms and social conventions, she's putting increased stress on Martha. And so Martha feels justified in trying to rectify the situation. When we play the narratives in our mind about anything, whether it's work or home or extended family or the person that cut you off on the road, we begin to look at what, what someone else is doing that impinges on us and we begin to play kind of the story over and over until we realize they're doing something unjust, uh, unjust, and it's affecting us, therefore we're justified in trying to fix that situation. That's how every kind of fight works, right? Right? I'm not, I refuse to preach anymore unless you guys at least <laughs> give me something. Um, I'm trying to go somewhere and, and I, I, I need a little, I need, I need some boost. Um, so that's what's going on. It's, it's rather human, it's rather normal, it's rather every day. And so she brings this charge to Jesus hey, Jesus, let me interrupt. This is my home after all. And if dinner's gonna be ready on time, I got something to say. My sister should be helping me. Um, it's like totally not fair, appealing to Jesus to like settle an argument with your, your sister, you know? Like I, I'm a pastor, so I actually do this from time to time with my sister. Like, do you really wanna go there? You know I'm a friend of God. <laughs> do you want me to talk to Jesus about, I don't know, uh, all right, so here's what Jesus has to say. Uh, so Martha's distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus replies, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. So there's an interesting thing. Jesus says, listen, you're, you're really trying to do a lot here. Get, get the food ready, the wine ready, the, the water for washing feet, uh, making sure people's uh, needs are met, directing traffic. That's a whole lot of things. I get it. It's a whole lot of things, probably more than are, than are, than are really needed to adequately show love uh, or be hospitable to this party. In, in some ways, like you could cut a couple things out and it'd be okay. You'd still be okay. And then more so than that, there's really only one thing that's needed here. The Messiah has come into your home. Um, the Son of God is here to proclaim both the healing and the message of the kingdom of God. And that 
in and of itself would be reason to miss a meal, to let some details slip, to, to lose sight of everything going on and recognize the significance and the importance and the opportunity that's there. Um, details are an interesting thing. They can distract you. Uh, I, I'm a very logical person. Logic runs my life. And I remember being, and I'm not, I'm not the most sentimental guy, which my wife, uh, I'm sensitive, and I have feelings, but I'm not sentimental. I know what I mean by what I'm saying right now. Um, so don't judge. But I remember on our wedding day, like having this conversation of like, I don't get it. Well, I mean, three months of planning and cake ladies. I, I, I was a good husband and like, I did the cake lady and the flower lady and all that. Like I took a lot of the pressure to try and prep everything. And then there was dresses and bridesmaids dresses and you know, taking and returning things and this and that and all of it, right? and people's travel plans and and it was a blur like I, so the whole thing happened and I was like I don't know what just happened to me I remember I ate carrots like I was like there's orange I'm hungry that looks healthy like I remember like and and so later on I'm like all I remember is the carrots you know and how my cheeks hurt from smiling and if you're a guy you know what I'm talking about when when you get pictures taken it's like you're doing the fake smile and, and you're doing it all with muscles that you don't normally use and your cheeks start hurting, you know? And I'm like, I don't get why that much money and that much time was like spent on, on something where I couldn't even engage anybody. It was just such a blur and so many details. And, and, and then I, you know, I, I had that little voice go off in the back of my head that, that I've learned as I've gotten older, like, you know, that says, warning, warning, you should be not talking about this on your wedding day save this for some other time, you know. But I was like really contemplating the logic of, of events. Does that make sense? Thank you. Thank, thank you. Um, I, I really needed that. Um, so Jesus is just, I think Jesus is just saying, Martha, you could really easily miss this. You could really easily miss this. You could, you could plan a great event, prep a great event, run around, take care of all the details, and you know what? You'll succeed at it. Obviously, you care about it. Obviously, you're focused, so you'll probably do a wonderful job with that. But here's the thing. Um, there's something greater going on than getting all the details right. And Mary has caught sight of that, and I will not take that from her. It's pretty powerful. What this message is not is what we're normally taught. Don't be a Martha personality, which means type A or structured or attention to detail or hardworking or hospitable or driven. Rather be a Mary personality, more spiritual, more laid back. So be a Mary, not a Martha. Um, I don't see personality or vibe or demeanor in this at all. The only thing we are given in this is choice. Mary, whatever her personality was, 
recognized something and made a better choice. It's not that being hospitable is wrong. I think scripture would say it's a wonderful thing. It's not that hard work is wrong. I think scripture and the example of Jesus and Paul shows us that hard work, that God tends to use people that work hard and that are willing to kind of sacrifice and endure and things like that. It's not that hard work is wrong. It's not that any of those things are wrong. Martha, whatever her personality is, is not somehow bad or or wrong, juxtaposed to this kind of bohemian Mary that's just like gonna chill at Jesus' feet because, hey, why wouldn't I, you know? And somehow, like, we need to learn to be more zen and more like Mary. And and it's kind of funny, but kind of not, because I've seen a lot of women be hurt by this. I've seen a lot of women be hurt by this. A lot of women confused, like, I'm passionate about my calling, I'm passionate about what God's asked me to do, and I'm passionate about working hard, and then I keep kind of carrying this guilt or, or people looking at me as if somehow I'm not as spiritual as somebody else that, that might be more into whatever it is, right? I've seen people wounded by this. That's not what's going on. The other thing that we see um, here is really interesting is that when Mary's making her choice, it's a bit of an awkward choice. You got called out in front of Jesus. <laughs> Did you think about that? So you're sitting there, there's a couple people, you're lost in what's being said, you're kind of hiding, you're, you've tuned out all this, maybe you pick up the awkward vibe of your sister. You know, we know body language of our, our family, don't we, right? And and she's sitting there, and Jesus is talking, and all of a sudden she gets called out to the Son of God. It's awkward. In front of these other disciples, it's awkward. Because she's defying social conventions. She's not where she's supposed to be as a woman, and she is where she's not supposed to be as a woman. And, and she gets called out. And Jesus comes to her aid and says, she's actually right where she's supposed to be. And how many other women have been wounded because they weren't where everyone was telling them they were supposed to be? And they were where they felt like God was leading them to be or calling them to be, um, where the Holy Spirit seemed to be opening doors or giving them a peace about being, and it's, it's awkward. And they get called out maybe to the elders in the community or to the, the, the people that are on the inside or the know, and maybe they get talked about in, in little dinner parties or little gatherings and whatever it is when they're not there. And um, there's something really powerful about Jesus saying, when you make the right choice, I don't care if it's socially acceptable or not, if you choose me and if you are where I would want you to be, then I will get you and I will protect you. I will stand by you. There's a, a moment of solidarity here with Jesus that's powerful. And some of you need to, to hear that, that Jesus will stand next to you in solidarity if you choose him, even if it's unpopular. And most of us are like, well, choosing Jesus is stuff for like pastors and evangelists and missionaries, but my life is messy. I've messed up my life. I've messed up my family or my job or whatever it might be. 
Uh, I don't feel like I have spiritual thoughts or attitudes. And so when you're talking about choosing Jesus, you're talking about other people choosing Jesus because Jesus is for the elite spiritual people that are getting it right. And, and that's absolutely not what's going on here. Jesus is saying, no, I'm for everybody. I'm for the outsider. I'm for the one on the margins. I'm for the one who would choose me and recognize that this is what's greatest in life. For you today, I don't care where you're coming from, this is the message of Mary and Martha, that you can choose Jesus in the midst of all your other concerns and worries and elevate that to the primary place. Maybe shave off a couple of the details, um, maybe still do a lot of it, but in all of it, that the primary thing, the central thing, what you have in the middle is your attention to the spiritual things, to Christ. But for me, this story isn't really about this passage. So I'm gonna transition on you. This story, I think to really understand the import of it, we have to look at the whole of the story of Mary and Martha. Um, and you might not have known that there's a whole story of Mary and Martha, of which this is just one instance. Last week we talked about um, the, the feeding of the 5,000 and that it's a story that's in all the Gospels. And there's something really interesting that happens. Even though this is in all the Gospels, Jesus does this. Uh, he, he makes all this food. The disciples are there. They hand it out. All these people are looking at it. And, um, and then in the Gospel of Mark, we see that somehow they didn't fully understand what happened with the feeding of the 5,000. So they get out on the lake, they're worried about the lake, Jesus walks out there and he says to them, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. He climbs into the boat with them, the wind dies down, and they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. It's a really fascinating part of that story from last week is that Jesus goes through this whole thing this whole exercise does this, this whole miracle, pulls his disciples into the story, into the narrative, and then literally that night, they're, they're kind of amazed and bitter and frustrated and scared and not really understanding, according to Mark, the message or the story of the loaves. And I think that that's kind of what is happening here with Martha and Mary is that Jesus is saying something so profound that it cuts through all of his ministry, literally with this, this one person at the center of that story. And, and what I think we're dealing here with, with is maybe one of the more central figures of the New Testament outside of Jesus, Jesus' mother Mary, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Peter. We're dealing with a figure, a person the story of a person that might be one of the most important stories of the gospel. And when we get to Mary and Martha and we talk about house cleaning and personalities, we're completely missing it. So I wanna, I wanna shift gears and go to part two and part three of this story. Part two and part three, that we would definitely understand what Jesus is teaching here with regards to Mary. Part two and part three uh, happen in John. And you don't have to turn there, but in John 11, we see the story of Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus. And Lazarus is the brother 
of Mary and Martha. Lazarus dies and Jesus is a long way off and so they slowly make their way to Lazarus uh, and, he's, and he knows that Lazarus has already died by the time the message gets to him and so they work their way down to where Mary and Martha are and where Lazarus is now buried and where they're from, where the home of Martha is, where that first story took place is a town called Bethany. And Bethany is right here. This map actually doesn't do it justice. It's within two miles of Jerusalem. It is very, very close to Jerusalem. Bethlehem is just south, right here, a little further away than Bethany. And I made a mistake last week. I was talking about Nazareth, uh, Nazareth where Jesus is from, and I accidentally said where Jesus was born. Uh, Jesus was obviously born in Bethlehem, but he's from Nazareth. That's his hometown where Mary and Martha were. And then he migrated over to Capernaum in this area around the Sea of Galilee. Um, so this is where Bethany is. This is a view standing on the top of the Mount of Olives. If you've ever gone to the Holy Land, ever gone to Jerusalem, you probably went here. It's uh, where a lot of tours go. This would have been all olive trees at one point. This is all um, gravestones. This is all, this is a big cemetery here now. Uh, that goes down this. This is the Dome of the Rock that's part of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which occupies the Temple Mount at this point. Just beyond it, you get the old city of, of Jerusalem that's within the walls, uh, and you have the four different quarters, the Muslim quarter, the Jewish quarter, the Christian quarter, etc. Um, right down here is a church where Jesus um, prayed on the night he was betrayed uh, in the garden. And um, so this is top of the Mount of Olives, right in sight of where the temple was. Bethany is on the backside of the Mount of Olives, just behind us here. So if you go over and down, that's where Bethany is, um, on the backside of the Mount of Olives. Now, Bethany is a very interesting town. It's believed that there was uh, an almshouse there, basically a poor house for the poor, and a sick house, a house of healing that sick people would come there, people with leprosy, um, others that are sick. Obviously, Lazarus die, uh, dies here. We don't know if, if he was somebody that had a long-term illness or whether he died kind of rather suddenly. Um, but you have this town where you have the poor gathering, uh, immigrants gathering, and you have this kind of healing house for sick. It's within the specified distance for a, a, the sick to be with regard to the temple. Um, the front side here would have been too close. So Bethany is reported to kind of be this, this city that bears these characteristics, literally within walking distance, short walking distance to the temple. More so than that, you had the people from Galilee, the Galilee region up here. You had a group of them that were in Bethany. So there's a population of Galileans that are in Bethany. The ethnic makeup of, of Bethany includes Galileans. In other words, Jesus' type of people. Um, people from that region. Jesus' disciples. People that, that are, uh, trace their roots back to there. Does that make sense? And that they're in this spot right on the other side of Jerusalem. So they would have come from Galilee down here. Not only that, you wouldn't have gone through Samaria if you would have come down, you would have crossed and come down by the Jordan River to Jericho, right in this area here. 
which is very low, kind of right by the Dead Sea, one of the lowest places on earth. Jericho is the longest continuously inhabited city in the world, uh, dating back to 10,000 BC. And from Jericho, you would have come up the Jericho Road, which is where Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you would have stopped right outside of Jerusalem at Bethany. So Jesus and his disciples would have come this way the first time he was at the home of Mary and Martha probably was when they were coming down to visit Jerusalem and on their way to Jerusalem, if that makes sense. So Jesus comes down now in the Gospel of John because Lazarus has died. They come down this way, cut up from Jericho, come to Bethany, and you get this miracle uh, that has to do with Lazarus. This is really close to the end of Jesus' life and ministry. And after this time of healing Lazarus, and we see Jesus again dealing with Martha and Mary and the, the people that have come there to mourn the death of Lazarus, Jesus and his disciples get away um, before they're gonna come down to the festival uh, here in Jerusalem. They get away to a, sound, uh, a city called Ephraim. Uh, and they, so they go up, cut up past Jerusalem to Ephraim, which was uh, right by the wilderness where they were gonna go to. That city exists today. It's an entirely Palestinian Christian city. And in that city, um, Taba, they have the Taba beer factory, which was made, uh, was created to Christian Palestinian brothers were in Boston uh, when the peace talks began and the micro, kind of the Sam Adams craze began of, of craft brewery. And so they went back to Taba and started this, this microbrewery there um, called Taba Beer with the goal of trying to create sustainable economic kind of things to help build a better Palestine utilizing this. Uh, Muslims can't drink alcohol, so this is some of the best beer you'll get in the Middle East, okay? And if you go on the trip that, that we're having at Ante uh, through Antioch next year to the, the Holy Land where you're gonna go to Christian sites and all of that while at the same time visiting a lot of the geopolitical things that are going on, talking with both Israelis and Palestinians and getting into that whole drill, you're gonna come to Taba and you'll get to meet the two brothers that started this. This is from a rooftop restaurant in Taba and you can see, not very well, but this is the wilderness, the desert wilderness right out there. So this is where Jesus and his disciples skirt past Jerusalem, come up here to just get away from the chaos, from the craze. Jesus has just healed a man, brought him back from the dead, and it's crazy for him. They, he, they wanna kill him already. And so they come up here to this wilderness area to get away. Um, and then what's gonna happen is after this, Jesus is going to return to Jerusalem. And in returning to Jerusalem, where does he go? Where does Jesus stay when he's, in, uh, when he's in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem? He stays in Bethany. So he goes back down to Bethany. And when Jesus mounts the colt, the, the donkey, and rides into to Jerusalem, he starts now on, on this return journey. He stays in Bethany. And he's going to start on that donkey from Bethany with the crowds of people laying down the palm branches as he heads towards um, the temple, towards the old city, with the Galileans 
leading the way as a part of this procession saying, this is the one, the Messiah. And so a couple days later, when you're inside the temple, when you're inside, uh, not the temple, but you're inside the grounds of the old city, and you're taking Jesus now to Pontius Pilate and Herod, and all of a sudden it's a totally different demeanor, and they're shouting to crucify him, and you're like, what gives with the fickle crowd? It's a different crowd. It's not the immigrants or the poor people or the outcasts that, that came along as Jesus went into Jerusalem. It's now the elite and the rich and the powerful and those that are from the area that own, that own the kind of political lobby that are saying, crucify him, crucify him. So that's a little bit of the narrative, okay? Before Jesus gets on that donkey and rides into Jerusalem, we see the third part of the story of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Bethany. And we see it the next chapter over from the, the Lazarus uh, chapter. That was John 11. We see this one in John chapter 12. And it says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Here dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. Here we go again. Okay. But I think Martha had learned, right? I don't think this is a derogatory thing. It's kind of funny. Martha served while Lazarus uh, was among those reclining at the table with him. Here we are at the table. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There you go. So this is what Mary does. What's interesting is the reaction. This time it's not Martha saying, hey, talk to Mary. She shouldn't be doing that. This time it's who? It's the disciples say to Jesus. So now Mary is getting called out a second time. Okay? I would argue for the exact same kind of choice. The first time sitting at Jesus' feet, making him the central figure, listening to him, saying, I want to learn from you. I want to be like you. I want, to, I want this to be the dominant narrative of my life. But she's choosing Jesus. Jesus now is going to go to his death. She comes in with all the wealth of, this, of the house and pours it on Jesus and begins to make this extravagant scene at the table where everybody's reclining. They're all right there. She doesn't wait till Jesus is alone. She doesn't wait till a private moment. She comes right into it and she breaks what? Social convention. And she inserts herself into the conversation like it doesn't matter what you guys are talking about. Taba beer or whatever it might be. I'm now choosing Jesus and I don't care what it says to you or what it does to you or whether you like it or not this is the central thing and I'm choosing it and I'm demonstrating with everything I have that choice to neglect what others are going to think about me and that choice with my wealth to now anoint Jesus and the smell of this is gonna dominate the room. This is now taking over the conversation. 
Do you see what's going on here? And so the disciples have to react. And they say this, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor it was worth a year's wages? And he did not say this because he cared about the poor, Judas, but because he was a thief and the keeper of the money, he was always helping himself to it. Jesus now says, leave her alone. In solidarity, once again, standing next to Mary. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Interesting thing, this verse in justice circles gets misused and abused a lot. For people of privilege or people of means to be like, hey, look, <laughs> all you bleeding heart, whoever's, you know, like, didn't Jesus himself say you're always going to have the poor with you? So, you know, don't go to too much of an extreme. It's, I mean, that, that verse gets used in this kind of globalized sense all the time. Jesus is sitting in a house, okay, um, and uh, where he's healed somebody from the dead. Simon the leper is in Bethany, and the there's poor people all around, and there are sick people all around. And so Judas thinks he's saying something wise, like that should have gone to this. And Jesus is saying, listen, the poor, the sick, these, pe these, these people will always be here. I'm about to leave in a day or two. I'm about to be gone. Um, but these people will remain. So what he's really saying is, let this happen because this is right and fitting for now. Mary chose what, what was best. A lot of things are important. Probably not all of them are necessary. But hey, there's only one thing that's really important. She's saying goodbye. She's honoring me. She's demonstrating that she knows who I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God and that this is the center. And what Jesus is really saying is not that the poor don't matter or that you can't eradicate poverty. He's saying, in a couple days, then you go back to that. You'll have plenty of time to work on solving the issues of poverty, which I care about, but for now, Mary did the right thing. Do you see that? Do you see that? So I think there's something really interesting going on. Um, Jesus feeds 5,000 and the disciples don't get it. Jesus says to Martha, leave Mary alone. She's chosen what is better. And I think we don't get it. We walk around going, are you a Mary or, or are you a Martha? You know, you look more like a Martha. Stop being such a Martha. Why? Because I'm lazy. I don't feel like working right now. So settle down, right? Like we, we misuse that passage. We don't realize the significance and the relevance. And what I'm trying to say is you see throughout this whole thing, Jesus' interaction with Mary is that she always gets it right. And Jesus is always standing in solidarity protecting this woman. This is not an isolated incident. This is the pattern of Mary, sister of Martha, and Jesus. It's a beautiful pattern that she consistently gets right and Jesus consistently pushes back all different kinds of people that he can honor what she seems to understand and get right about her relationship with Jesus. The choice that you can always make in any and every situation to prioritize the things of God.
And so Jesus says this. This is from Mark. But so right on the heels of this, Jesus says, I tell you, and this shows up in multiple gospels, by the way. He says, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world. So the good news of what? Of Jesus coming, of Jesus dying for sins, that we can have relationship with God once again. Once, whenever, uh, wherever that good news is taught. Anywhere in the world. So Paul, when you're in Athens. Paul, when you're in Corinth. Um, Peter, when you go to Cornelius' house. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world. What she has done will also be told in memory of her. Really interesting. Whatever she has done will be told in memory of me because what she did points to the fact that I'm primary. I think if Jesus had said that, we would have still, it would have still meant something really significant, right? We would have been like, yeah, what she did was really cool and it pointed to the significance of Jesus. That's not what Jesus says. Wherever the gospels preach, it will be told in memory of her. Of her. Um, I heard a kid say, I don't like, and my mind filled in sermon, and then I heard movie, and then it was okay. Um, <laughs> so stop, stop with me for just a second. If I say to you, what's, what, what is the most significant story of a person in the New Testament or in the Gospels outside of Jesus? What would you say? I think we might say Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, you found favor with God. I think we could say John the Baptist, Jesus says, none uh, born to man, no, no one else in some sense is greater than this person, John the Baptist, honoring him. Nathaniel, it's funny, he shows up like as a blip and then he's gone and Jesus says, this is a true Israelite in whom nothing is false. That's a fascinating story, but it feels like it almost ends before it begins. Peter, I tell you the truth, um, on this rock I will build my church. That's an amazing story. But this example of a woman who throughout the life of Jesus defied social convention, braved the awkwardness to extravagantly highlight, worship, adore, choose Jesus to the point that it goes all the way to the end and Jesus is saying, I'm not always gonna be able to stand here in solidarity because I see the pattern. She's gonna keep choosing me and you guys are gonna probably keep giving her a hard time. Let me just end this right now. Wherever the gospel is preached, so goes the story of Mary in honor of her. I think it's one of the most significant stories of a person in all of the New Testament. It's why we named our oldest daughter Mary. But the name Mary means bitter. And we were trying to name her after this Mary. And so we pivoted off the name and we said, let's call her Mary. Mary joy when you sit at Jesus' feet this is what comes from it so that's why my oldest daughter has two first names and no middle name it's not just a nickname she is Mary joy in honor of her so what does this story say to us 
it simply says this. It's not about personality types. It's not about your vibe. It's not about your demeanor. It's not about your behavior even. It's about your choice. And choices come from the heart. You might ask, how do I do this? How do I put Jesus at the center? I got money problems, job problems, marriage problems. I got health problems. What does that mean? And I'm like, there's a lot you could worry about. Some of it might be be good or necessary. But in the middle of that, there's only one thing that dominates all the other things. And that's that you honor God in the midst of that and say, you are more important. Christ, you're at the center. How do you do that? You pray. Jesus, help me to process this spiritually the way you would have me process it. Jesus, how would you have me act in this? Jesus, how would you have me be sick to your glory? Jesus, how would you have me go through bankruptcy to your glory at this point, at at this stage of the conversation? Jesus, how would you help me make decisions to prioritize you that other people are going to scoff at and mock? How, how, do I, how do I do that? So prayer, your choice, your time, your energy, the center. Choices come from the heart. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will one thing. So we can talk about it a bunch of different ways. We can say from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. What does it look like in every instance to try and live your life in a way that it's aimed at an audience of one to witness to and glorify what God has done? The good news. We can talk about it that way. We can use Jesus' words from the book of Revelation that when we're doing our stuff, having our our little groups, having our fun time, having our meals, our Thanksgiving meals, whatever it might be, that he stands at the door and knocks and that in a very real way, we can kind of leave him on the outside or we can invite Jesus to the inside to be a meaningful part of what we're doing and prioritize that. We can talk about this so many different ways. It shows up all throughout scripture, but the reality is, are you willing to choose to prioritize, to make Christ the center. Purity of heart is to will one thing. And if you can choose that, if you're willing to will that, Jesus will stand with you in solidarity. He will get your back. Somehow the logic of what you're doing, although counterintuitive to everybody else, will someday come to the light. And I I have to believe will earn you praise or affirmation, because that's the nature of our Savior. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Wherever my story goes, her story goes too, in honor of her. She did this to prepare me for my burial, and it will not be taken from her. Whatever you do to honor Christ, if you're honestly choosing to do that, not with ulterior motives, but because Christ is the center. That's what it means to live by faith and then trusting that somehow that will be honored. When we walk by faith, God proves himself faithful. When we put our trust in God, God proves himself trustworthy. Choose Christ. 
That's what Jesus tried to say over and over. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Choose me. Instead of worry, choose me. Instead of fear, choose me. Instead of gossip, choose me. Instead of depression, try to choose me. Whatever it is, keep me at the center and let Mary be a testament to that. Father, help us to truly distill the heart of the stories that maybe we've known from childhood. That we wouldn't oversimplify the Bible stories. That we wouldn't become numb to the power and the potency of truth or examples like Mary in the Gospels. Keep our eyes open, keep our hearts pure, help us to see truth, and in all of that, Father, we know we're weak. Give us the strength to make the choice, to reorient our world, to kind of shift and radicalize our whole worldview to where your son is at the center. Our desire to worship you becomes forefront. And please provide the encouragement, the times of refreshing, the joy that's needed for us to be able to sustain that as we go forward. I pray that for myself, for my kids, for my wife, for my friends, for this church. In Jesus' name.